Hello and welcome to Beauty is Eternal, the art of being your best self for women, where we go in depth and under the skin of experts. My name is Caitlin and I'm your host. Today's episode is called The Legend of Shane McManus. From Irish Defense Forces marksman to sommelier to Soho House Berlin bar manager to Irish folk musician and romantic boyfriend. Without struggles in life, there would be no stories worth telling. Just as everyone has a unique fingerprint created within certain parameters, everyone has a unique life story created within certain parameters. Today, we are going to look at the story of Shane McManus covering the happiness and the struggles, the tragedy, the triumph, his great love and his life lessons. Shane would never brag about his accomplishments, which is why we want to interview him. When you think of army veterans, you often think of an older and potentially disabled person or you picture someone who looks like they would kill you if you say the wrong thing. By all appearances, Shane looks and talks like a normal, healthy man when you meet him. But Shane is no ordinary man. He was born in Strabane, Ireland. He has been working at Soho House for four years now, where he is the bar manager, and prior to that was the general manager at two different companies while he became a sommelier. He spent six years working in the Irish Army and was deployed to a number of countries in Africa, including Chad, where he worked as a marksman on deployments. He plays a variety of musical instruments, including guitar, drums, trumpet, and he sings. Shane is going to talk to us about his boyhood in Ireland his experiences as a sommelier and bar manager, his favorite drink, the meaning of music in his life, his time in the Irish army, where he will tell us the stories that he's legally allowed to share, alongside defense tips for women, and finally, he will tell us about working at Soho House Berlin, including the story about how he met the love of his life, who, by the way, since we recorded this, is now his fiance. Not to mention, he's even going to play a couple of songs for us. This episode is brought to you by Manoverschluck, the rum made by sailors for sailors. You can find a link to the Manoverschluck Instagram in the notes to this show on beautyiseternal.com. Let's start now. Thank you for being my guest today, Shane. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> you were telling me about a surprise you recently gave to your girlfriend. Could you share with our listeners a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, it was her birthday, and uh, I kind of tried to keep it as quiet as possible so she wouldn't find out but I went to a, a local store I think it was called Tiger Tiger and I got one of those it's kind of like a light but you could slip in uh, different letters to make up a word and 
really funny actually. Whenever I was at the shop, I wanted it wrapped in wrapping paper, so I had to do the word there and then. And then the lady was kind of laughing at me behind the counter. What happened was I gave it to her, she opened it up, seen the box, and she was like, oh, fantastic, a light. And when she opened it and took it out of the box, it actually spelled Copenhagen. And we went for five days in Copenhagen as a surprise. And I um, got in touch with her work to make sure she was off for those days. We had a great time. That is so sweet. You are such a good boyfriend. I do try. <laughs> now I'd like to ask you a little bit about your past. You grew up in Ireland. What was your childhood like? I grew up right beside the border of Northern Ireland, Southern Ireland. It was just in the early 90s, so it was the end of the Troubles. I grew up in a really in a small cottage, about seven miles from the border. My brother was like uh, eight years between me and my brother, so they had kind of already gone through their teenage times and whatever, you know. Um, personally, I feel like I grew up kind of a little bit lonely-ish, out in the middle of the countryside, which is absolutely beautiful, top of a hill, nice cottage, green fields everywhere, but of course, whenever you're that age, you don't really care about green fields. Mm -hmm. You only appreciate those things later. I feel like I grew up kind of like an outdoor kind of kid, because I went to school in Straban, which is just past the border. And uh, I had a lot of different kind of mentalities and different thoughts than my friends at school because they all grew up together around housing estates and within the, the town where we come from. It was quite lonely, but not in a bad way. Did you feel a little bit like an outsider? Absolutely. The perfect example would be I was the only kid in early primary school who was into heavy metal and who knew how to build a treehouse. <laughs> That's a very useful skill. Later in life, yeah, but you know, uh, at that time, you kind of, whenever you're an outsider, you're an outsider no matter what. That's all that you think about, you know, that's the important things is kind of trying to belong to a group or trying to belong to a certain type of people. I think it showed whenever I was in primary school, I got, I was the tallest in my class. Uh, I was also the oldest in my primary school years, but yet I got severely bullied for years because I was kind of like the gentle giant in such a way. I feel like it was because I kind of I was just a little um, bit more uh, inverted and a little bit more imagination maybe because when you're out in the middle of nowhere your imagination runs wild. And you mentioned you had older siblings? Yeah, so I have um, two older brothers and an older sister. All of them have been a massive, massive impact on my life. I mean, my eldest brother Damien he was the one who got me into music, you know, he uh, was the one who got me into computer gaming. Also, my older brother, Ryan, who's the closest one to me, like the, in age wise, extremely intelligent. 
extremely, he was always extremely popular, extremely witty, you know, always good with a joke. But they've always, uh, always looked after me a, a lot throughout my whole life. It was lovely. It was great to have them. And my sister Emma as well, I mean, uh, she basically reared me because my mom was working at a clothes factory whenever I grew up, like making tights and socks. And this factory was pretty much where everybody worked in our town. I am very, very close to my sister because we had spent so much time whenever I was growing up. I can still remember, and I said this on a wedding day as well, I thought she was going to kill me. But I remember like her uh, teaching me the whole dance moves to Dirty Dancing <laughs> <laughs> and singing under a hairbrush. But yeah, I mean, uh, my siblings, uh, they were fantastic. My two brothers have always been very popular within the town as well. They were always very popular guys. They've always been well respected, which is a very, very important thing for where I come from. I feel like that is in a way. It's like the popular people were the guys, especially who were good at fighting, because it's one of those towns that's like, it's a small town that has that small town syndrome. The best fighters and the best footballers, the best Gaelic players were the popular people. Is that what got you interested in boxing? Actually, not at all. I got into boxing because I used to get pretty badly bullied at primary school. I don't know if the guys um, who did the bullying, who I'm friends with now, I don't know if they understood that it, first of all it was bullying and second of all how deep of an impact it can have on someone. I got into boxing because I wanted to defend myself. I got into boxing because where I come from like, everybody did boxing. You know, everybody did a boxing every now and again. But it was just kind of like a rite of passage kind of thing. But whenever I got into boxing, I landed at the boxing club on my first day. A friend was supposed to come with me and he never showed. So I landed in this boxing club with the trainers there, absolute legends in boxing. Who were all actually trained by my grandfather's brother, who was actually a world champion. Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize how big that was until later in life, but I landed there with a, a t-shirt, a pair of shorts, and a, a, a pair of like, kind of boots instead of plastic bag, <laughs> like a shopping bag. And after that first training session, it just, uh, I got absolutely hooked because Busty Cunningham was my first trainer and he made me stand in the, uh, in the hallway of the boxing club and practice the same jab over and over and over again while everybody else was getting they had the bag and they were getting to spar each other and you know competitions and like these skipping things and having fun whereas he made me do this jab for about three weeks every single night <laughs> up and down but he obviously I don't know liked me for some reason because uh, after that three weeks then he went on to a straight, which is a right hand, and I did that for another three weeks. <laughs> uh, but I never complained and I was never pissed off at it because, and I never kind of was jealous of the other guys doing all these other things because I just wanted to learn. I knew that I was learning from some, like a group of trainers who really, really knew what they were talking about and actually proved to be right after a while.
Are there any particular memories that stick out to you from around that time? I remember whenever I left school one day, I was going up to my granny's, grandmother's um, house, which was five minute walk away. And on the way, there's this place called the Grotto. It's kind of like an alleyway. And I was walking up and I got jumped by five guys. I got pretty badly beaten. And when I got home, my parents were going crazy because they were saying like, you know, who was it? Who, who did this and what happened? But I never said who they were or what happened. Why? Because I didn't want them to get in trouble. Wow, it's very conscientious of you. When you grow up watching Marvel movies and watching Batman, it's like, you know, I thought it was more important that they don't get into trouble than me getting any type of revenge or anything like that. Strabans, you don't understand it unless you come from there. On paper, it's a really bad time, you know? Suicide rates have gone up in years, and it's horrible. It's the most bombed town in Ireland during the 60s and 70s. It had the highest unemployment rate in Ireland wow. during the 60s and 70s. But if you're from there, I feel like it's, it's the best town that I know. I love going home. Whenever I was growing up, people who weren't from there would always say, oh, no, that's a really rough place. But I remember being a kid and like being five or six years old and you could walk in, the doors were always open, nobody locked their doors. And you could walk into anyone's house and like the adults who were in this house would uh, open the fridge and give you like you know, a bar of chocolate or a packet of crisps or a bottle of juice or something. And I've always felt that one of the safest places that I've ever been was my hometown. I couldn't walk the streets of London and feel as safe as I do in supposedly a really rough, bad time. Because everybody knows everybody. Everybody has been through a lot in that time. And whenever I go home, I feel very safe and I feel very welcomed. And I've been away for a while as well. I've been away for, a lot, for quite a long time. But whenever I go home, everybody seems to make a big deal out of it. Would you say that you have a tightly knit Irish family? I would say that, <laughs> actually, yeah. I would. I would. It's all about the, the cliches, <laughs> you know? And then uh, the best thing about Irish cliches is that they're true. <laughs> you know? You get, the, uh, you get a lot of jokers. You get a lot of uh, funny characters. Quick sense of humor. Extremely, way too quick for me. <laughs> I was never one of those witty <laughs> characters who could come out with a really good comeback. But everybody just enjoys life as much as they can. Everybody has a story. And you might hear that story 20 times. But it never gets old. <laughs> with my family, my mum is probably the strongest person I've ever met in my life. The amount of things that she's been through and how hard she works and having to raise us. That's a job in its own. To do that also after 20 odd years, 30 odd years of um, 
struggles with politics, politics and sectarianism. And then, of course, she would have to go and fall in love with an Irish soldier as well, which uh, is not ideal for, for a woman for where she's from. Why not? Well, there's this kind of... I never really understood it, obviously. So my father was in the army uh, whenever he met my mum. And my mum always says, and I don't know how true it is, but she always said it, that the first time she met him, she was throwing stones at him. <laughs> and... Uh, when he like caught her, she, my mum had this like long black braid down her back, and she was cursing at him and shouting at him. And uh, my father's response was, "I've always wanted to marry Pocahontas." <laughs> <laughs> I think during that time it wasn't uh, well known for a woman from Strabane to be with an Irish soldier. Going back to what you said earlier. Did you ever figure out why those boys jumped you in the first place? I think it comes back to the question of feeling like an outsider. I don't really know. I mean, fighting was always a big part of childhood whenever I was a kid, you know, and I was never a fighter. I think it was more to do with, yeah, me living out in the countryside, being an outsider, kind of. You know, I wasn't uh, the football-playing type. I wasn't the uh, talking-to-girls type. You know, I wasn't very intelligent or anything like that. And I think it might have just came down to the typical kind of cliche of a kid who likes heavy metal and trying to grow his hair. <laughs> you know, drawing pictures of the Iron Maiden symbol. <laughs> <laughs> You were different. I think it was, yeah. I think it was. And children certainly have a way of detecting those who are different. Yeah. And uh, I think, like, the difference kind of scares people. I think that being different is necessary. Because if we're all the same, it would be a really boring place. It's true. At the time, obviously, I went through this horrible, horrible period. I mean, I even had an imaginary friend when That's I was a really kid. That's really sweet. <laughs> it was weird. That's not that uncommon. No. What was your imaginary friend? Oh, he didn't even have a name. Called him the little boy with the glasses. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah. And I think that like, comes down to it as well, you know, like, because my brothers and, you know, my sister were fantastic. And they always uh, taught me so much and always giving me great advice and trying to help me. But because of the age gap, it was different, you know? Why was there such an age gap? I have no idea. I think it was a mistake. <laughs> Best mistake they ever made. I'm one of four children and my brother is the youngest and they do say that he was an accident. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but some accidents bring great fortune. I mean, apparently. <laughs> I just need to get rich now and then. <laughs> then I think my mum will forgive me. <laughs> no, they were, I mean, my whole family were fantastic, to be, to be honest. I think uh, the things, like, the, the things that stick out in my mind, you know, that I feel like, they were traumatic or they were 
stressful. Now I'm extremely glad that I went through because now at the moment in this last few years, I can act as the first time in my entire life that I could actually say that I'm actually proud of myself. You know, and I'm happy about myself and I don't think I would ever get to this point where I feel comfortable without going through certain things and, you know, making mistakes because that builds your character. That's true. What kind of experiences did you have when you were younger that were really difficult that you were referring to? There was a few different things. The first time I ever had to be uh, kind of exposed to death freaked me out. I wasn't afraid, but it freaked me out. And it was my great-grandmother. And I remember her being at a wake, you know, an Irish wake. It was having the cast open, the coffin opened. And, and I've also heard an open bar. Well, people would usually just bring the whiskey. <laughs> And it would last for a few days, you know, and a lot of people would come around the house and they have these you know, old Irish traditions where they cover all the mirrors and windows with uh, blankets and stuff, supposedly like uh, to keep evil spirits away. And the men would be in one room drinking whiskey and co- cognac and smoking, and the woman would be in the other room and they'd be making sandwiches. and. You know, talking, and it would always, uh, it would always end up in like somebody singing songs, and then another person would sing a song, and then that would last for days. I mean, there's something I said a couple of years ago, and I found it really funny. Uh, I said that uh, there's only one thing better than an Irish wedding, and that's an Irish funeral. Back to that, like dealing with uh, someone like my, that was her name, my great grandmother, my, she was, um, you know, she was the mother of all of us. She was old, she was wise, she was extremely strong character and personality. You were afraid of her, (laughs) but she never showed any signs of weakness until she got, uh, she took a stroke. And then seeing this really strong, independent, wise, uh, experienced woman being in a nursing home and, you know, not being able to speak and not being able to feed her stuff. That was kind of like a, a kind of like a slap in the face for me because that was my first introduction to, you know, deterioration and death. And when it came, I was extremely confused. I'm not, I'm not the type of person who would ask questions about it. I just kind of like observe, be quiet, and then make my own evaluation of it. But yeah, I think that was actually another character building thing. That was quite traumatic, I think, looking back at it now. I think that was quite a, that was a big eye-opener for such a young young person but i'm sure everybody goes through that i'm sure everyone feels the exact same way how old were you eight or nine younger even but i can still remember it i think we all remember our first experience with death Hmm. but we don't all experience three-day irish (laughs) funeral rites 
it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> it's something I, that I've come to appreciate. Again, in later, in later in life, I've come to appreciate certain things about uh, Irish mentalities that I'd never even thought about before. Like what? Oh, the simple things, you know, the, 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 the silly sayings that mean nothing, but they've... More depth to them, them than... Yeah. Than meets the eye. Exactly. And just the mentalities, you know, like, um, no matter how traumatic or hard, or crazy, a day, a week, or a month has been, you'll still get that one friend or that one guy who would turn around and make a joke about it. <laughs> and it's fine. I think that that's a really strong way to deal with something, actually. So as well, yeah. It breaks some of the tension. Definitely. And the good, like, the good thing about that I realized about Irish funerals speaking a lot about Irish funerals, but is that well it's apparent according to you it's the the place to be it's, the it's, it's, a, it's a party it's a party <laughs> it's a party you bring your party hat you <laughs> bottle, a bottle of whiskey or something and go for it but the good thing was that like uh, nobody ever no no the reason why they that wake lasted a few days and an Irish funeral was fine was because we celebrated the life and you didn't cry about the death you know because i'm in no way christian or no way religious whatsoever but i do feel like there is something more to celebrate in life instead of thinking about the death and thinking about somebody else who's gone i don't think that they're going up to a better place up in the clouds or anything like that but i feel like um that someone's life should be celebrated and their achievements and their experience no matter how long or short it may be because everybody has a story I think that's a beautiful way of looking at things in some situations we can laugh or we can cry or we can do both but I think laughter is almost another form of crying Absolutely, yeah. It's like the age-old saying, tears of a clown. <laughs> you know? My mum used to say something uh, that stuck to me, that I still say today uh, where I'm working, is uh, if you worry, you die. If you don't worry, you die. So why worry? <laughs> that's really good. That's true. That's, that's funny. You are very interested in music. You're a musician nowadays, and you mentioned that one of your brothers got you interested in music. Can you talk a little bit about your early experiences with it, Iron Maiden, creating music, and what it meant for you growing up? Through my whole entire life, since I can remember, music has always been, and still is, my first love and my biggest passion. Both of my brothers, uh, Damien was like, he was a heavy metal head, uh, and still is, and he introduced me to the likes of Iron Maiden, to Pink Floyd, which are probably my favorite band of all time. He introduced me to 
hardcore metal, and then he introduced me to the softer side and the, you know the grunge days. It's funny because I kind of follow his traits as well. Mm -hmm. Like he was never into the glam metal days of Van Halen or anything like that. Like, and I'm the same because I think uh, I looked up to Damien a lot when I was a kid, and whatever he said when I was a child was gospel. <laughs> <laughs> so he introduced me to the heavy metal side of music and then also the likes of Led Zeppelin, the Pink Floyd days. I was born in the early 90s but like in the late 90s while everybody else was listening to Boyzone and Westlife and NSYNC, I was listening to Iron Maiden and Metallica and you know, heavy metal bands. Um, but also, my other brother, Ryan, he got me into electronic music. I still remember Christmas Day, uh, 1998, Christmas Day. We woke up and Ryan got a set of uh, techniques, mixing tables, turntables with a mixer. And from that day on, Ryan was obsessed with uh, electronic music and you know house music from Detroit, house music from Chicago. We were listening to the likes of Brother Brown under the water, which uh, I remember he put it up the vinyl cover. He put it up on the wall, and that was like the last thing I would see before going to sleep. Mm -hmm. um, we would. He taught me how to mix tracks in with vinyls, which. It's kind of funny now because whenever I'm listening to DJs, talking to DJs in Berlin especially, whenever I talk about vinyls, they tell me that they can't mix in vinyls. Why not? Because they use pioneers and electronics. They use these, uh, you know, UC, uh, USB sticks and the, the tempo, they can actually mix the tempo in by pressing buttons to mix it in, which is amazing as well because I still, I would, one of the things that I would love to do in the future is to actually learn how to mix with pioneers and CDJs and the new technology that uh, every single DJ in the world plays with today. But whenever I tell them that I can mix vinyls in with two different, even two different types of genres of music, they're very surprised. Because people don't do that anymore. Not anymore, no. Because whenever my brother was teaching me how to mix in vinyls, and he was very good as well. He was a very, very good DJ for such a young guy. And that was the, the start of the Ibiza days as well. You know, you had like Fatboy Slim on, <laughs> on the radio constantly. Whenever he would teach me how to do that, that paved the way for having an ear for music. So... Just after that, whenever I was in primary school, uh, they had this kind of scheme where at my primary school you could join um, to learn different types of instruments. One of them was a trumpet and I decided to join that. After playing the trumpet and also by this time I had already got my first ever guitar, which was a Westfield uh, replica of a Fender Stratocaster. The Fender Stratocaster would cost about a thousand pounds, but this one cost about ninety pounds. 
my mum and dad bought it for me with a little tan wad on and I played it until my fingers absolutely bled. During that time it kind of paved my way for listening to different sounds, different instruments and I got so interested in it. And I, I don't think a lot of people know this and I don't think um, I've ever expressed it a lot but whenever I was that age, in my mind all I wanted to do was be a music teacher. So I wanted to learn as many different instruments as possible and listen to different genres of music. So while I had my friends who were listening to, you know, uh, pop music and dance music, cheesy dance music <laughs> in the 90s, I was listening to the same thing, even though I didn't like it that much. But I was listening to the same thing, but also at the same time I was listening to heavy and death metal music. But also at the same time as that, I was listening to classical music. I was listening to African music. I was listening to as many different types of genres as possible. Because even though I, I, I didn't particularly want to play that type of music, I still had a massive respect for any type of music, really. And I had the weirdest CD collection ever. <laughs> I had everything from Slipknot to Britney Spears. Celine Dion to Bob Dylan, and I still do today, you know, like every two days ago I woke up and me and Jan, my girlfriend, were sitting, uh, we're lying in bed and I was kind of in a bit of a funny mood so I started playing NSYNC <laughs> and then afterwards I started playing some uh, death metal music. <laughs> I have a lot of respect for music and I have a lot of respect for musicians and I think Music has a lot of answers and a lot of emotions to kind of get, take you away from not so much life, but like kind of give you some answers that you might not recognize. But how I got into music, it was definitely my two brothers who got me into different genres of music and then I kind of made my own mind up of what kind of music I wanted to do or play and it ended up being absolutely anything. Did it have anything to do with impressing girls? Or was that not really on your radar? No, it was never really my type of thing. Still to this day, I have never in my life ever walked up to a girl that I didn't know at a bar or a nightclub or anything and like start talking to them randomly. Never. Do you want to play any songs? Do you want me to? Yeah. I thought love wasn't meant to last. Thought 
wasn't expecting that It was only a word It almost went unheard But I wasn't expecting that But it came with that fear A month turned into a year I wasn't expecting that I thought love was meant to last I thought that you were only passing through If I ever again nerve to eyes do right to deserve somebody like you wasn't expecting that I find our love being changed the flicker of the sweetest smile If you're not a good chance on a little romance, what I wasn't expecting that time doesn't take long, three kids up and gone, I wasn't expecting that. Then the places they came said it's coming back again. I wasn't expecting that. Then you closed your eyes, took my heart by surprise. I wasn't expecting that. You're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. How does a child who grows up loving music and doing boxing end up joining the army? What was behind your decision to join the Irish Defence Forces? I think from a very, very young age, I always knew straight away that I was going to be in the military. How? My father was in the military for 25 years. Extremely respected in the military. I'm pretty sure still to this day he holds the record as the best shot in the Irish Army. Wow. So big shoes to fill. I remember my eldest brother, Damien, uh, tried to get into the Army and unfortunately he didn't. I, I can't really remember the reasons why, but I remember he wanted to get in a lot, you know. He was like, a, his training regime, whenever he decided to go for it, was intense and there's no better person to train you for the military than what my father was mm. my older brother ryan it was never kind of um, his thing you know it was he uh, he i remember him laughing making a joke one time whenever my eldest brother damien was trying to get into the army he says like oh ryan uh, why don't you want to come to the army you know you're too afraid and my brother at the time was just after finishing his uh, electrician uh, apprenticeship. 
And he says, well, because you're going over and you're trying to hurt people, I'm trying to keep people warm in the house. <laughs> but it was a joke, you know, like brotherly jokes. Well, we have all, all of us, all three of us, all three brothers have been uh, very interested in boxing, uh, relatively keeping fit, you know, especially because of my father. My father was a, he still is a legend in the army. The best shot, always um, had the best jokes, also known as a very good singer, <laughs> which was another part of the music part. And uh, just a genuine, hard, grafting, extremely nice man with a load of experience. And a the army to my father was and still is everything. Wow. It sounds like he was a bit of a role model for you. Absolutely. If I could be a tenth of what my father is, I would be extremely happy. What was it like for you when you entered the army? I was 17 when I joined the army. I was extremely fit, extremely fit, because I had been boxing for so many years. Also, before joining the army, I had jobs like, uh, my first ever job was welding. I think I was 14 or 15, completely illegal. <laughs> but that's, a, that's, that's a, the way things work. That's the way things were. That's the way things were, yeah. And my, my other jobs that I did was uh, being on building sites, laboring for bricklayers, which is a really tough, hard job. Physical. Extremely, especially for, now that I look back, I mean, especially for um, a 15, 16 year old who's not even finished growing. Really? Yeah. Uh, you get muscles in places where you didn't even know you had. <laughs> it's very rough, and it's like I remember carrying bricks in winter winter time, and you're going to drop the bricks. Like you look at your hands, and there's bits of skin coming off because it was so cold. But again, as I says before, but it's all the character building kind of thing. I mean, no. Very true. Yeah. So joining the army, I, I always I always knew I was going to join the army because. Damien had tried. My sister Emma, by around this time, she had already had her first child, and she had her own family and was building her own her own family. And then Ryan, he was uh, in the apprenticeships and becoming an electrician. So, it's so I was the last son. Yeah. You know. To carry on the legacy. Exactly, because my father's father was in the military and the Irish Defence Forces whenever they started in 1922. Wow. He went from a postman to being pretty high up in the army. So it was a, it was a family legacy, it was a family tradition. And I remember my father taking me out when I was, when I was coming up to uh, boxing fights. Where my house is, it's on a hill. So there's a lot of holes, so you get like really, really steep holes that might be two, three hundred meters long. And he would behind, be behind me in a car while I was running. And that was before school. Wow. <laughs> before going to school. And um, not that he never pushed me or nothing. He, he never, he never, to. he never enforced anything on me at all, ever in life. 
he never like um, said this is what you're gonna do type of thing. He was never like that. He was just extremely supportive whenever I asked him for his advice or for help. And whenever I joined the army, I remember doing my fitness test. I came in first in the fitness test. Wow. I did my medical. Uh, I found out that day that I had a 2010 vision. So you get like 2020 mm-hmm. is perfect. Perfect. I actually had 10, 2010. Even better. Yeah. Wow. Which like apparently only um, something like 21% of the world. Wow. Had, which was news to me. I flew through the introduction, but then when it came to recruit training, that was a whole different story. Why? So in recruit training, it was an athlone. So, so I went to uh, athlone, which is halfway down Ireland. So you're talking, you know, maybe 170 kilometers away from home. After you pass your fitness test and everything, you've got a week and then you go there and that's like your recruit training is brutal. What's it like? It's extremely intense. First of all, I was the youngest in the platoon. Also, that kind of outsider personality carried on. One thing that my father always says is that the best friends he ever met in his life were in the army. You know, the whole reason why he is the man today is because of the friends that he had and the comradeship. And I hear loads of soldiers talking like that, you know, um, especially like guys I met from uh, from the US Marines and guys that I'd met in other armies. They had said, you know, the comradeship was the biggest part of it. But for me, it was completely the opposite. I did not get along with Anybody in uh, recruit training, which what? was weird. What was the experience like? Why didn't you get along with the other recruits? Again, I think it came back to a school thing. It was like everybody was very witty. Everybody like you know played a lot of pranks, played a lot of jokes. But being away from home was hard enough. Then the intensity of the, f- the fitness and like the physical regime, like getting two hours sleep and then having to run 20 kilometers with 150 pounds in your back. Oh my goodness. You know, shortage of food. Every two minutes you have somebody screaming in your face, calling you all the names that they can think of. You know, the, the pressure of letting somebody else down that was a big one that I always found very hard. It was like, um, I always wanted to do the best that I could so that I wouldn't want any of the other guys in the platoon or in the recruit platoon to suffer for my mistake. That's something you carried over from your childhood. You were very That's conscientious right. of not wanting to make things more difficult for the people around you. I think so, yeah, I think so. How long were you in this training program? So recruit training lasted um, seven, eight months. And it's, it's so intense. There was weeks where, you know, you so you live in barracks, obviously. You're woken up at four o'clock in the morning. The, these uh, instructors are inspecting your clothes. They inspect you like 
three, four times a day. Uh, you have to, like I used to have to shave three times every day. Wow. Because if they found one like hair out of place, you were destroyed. I guess they were trying to create discipline. This is the thing. This is the thing. It worked. The discipline thing, like, I feel like I had a head start on that compared to other people. Because there, there was guys I was in recruit training with who had, like, really, really rough upbringings, really rough lives, and the army was a last resort. I already had the boxing discipline, so whenever they said to me, okay, now you're going to run 20 miles, I would say, okay, when do I start? And it wasn't being arrogant or cocky, it was following orders. I never felt like I had to prove anything to anyone. I just wanted to do my job because also at that time the recession had hit and there was a lot of my friends who couldn't get jobs at all. There was thousands upon thousands who tried to get in uh, when it, during the recruitment that we got into. This was around 2008. 2007, yeah. And I've... Uh, always thought to myself, I am extremely lucky to be here. You know, like the army, whenever I joined, it was fantastic. You had a secure job, you had weekly pay, you had health insurance, you also had like the things like your will and stuff was all looked after, so you don't have to worry about that. You had pension, like I cared a lot about those type of things you know, security and things. So whenever I was in the army, I felt extremely lucky to be where I was, but it didn't make it any easier emotionally. Physically, it was extremely tough. But after that, other things got tougher. I've, I've been through more physically hard things. But emotionally, being in recruit training and being back to square one again, being back to you know, the primary school kid. It was very emotionally hard. Really, really hard. I didn't get through it by the help of any of the people who I was there with, or I didn't get through it with a family support or anything because I would never tell them how I really felt. You know, I never wanted to let my father down or I never wanted to let my mum down or let them worry more than anything. So I would always just tell them everything's absolutely fine. How did you get through it then? Just by gritting my teeth and saying like... Willpower. Yeah. Like it's either this or what else are you going to do? Because also I don't have any qualifications. I don't have any exams. I never passed any exams, nothing like that. I don't have any education. And when you're that young, that can feel really overwhelming. It feels like those are your only options. That's what I felt like, yeah. That's what I felt like. After you finished with recruit training, did you go straight into combat? Did you have more training? What happened then? After recruit training, there's um, an extension on training. It's called the 2 to 3 star course. So you pass out as a two-star soldier after recruit training. Passing out means uh, graduating. And you do another course which is more relaxed on the emotional kind of breaking you down side. And it focuses more on your skill sets. And it, uh, it, you work more on things like 
map reading, learning about survival, learning how to deal with certain situations. A lot was to deal with um, being a marksman, dealing with diff different weapons, dealing with uh, hostage situations, things like that. During that time, I actually really felt comfortable because I had gotten used to it by this time. And after passing recruit training, because I also got really badly injured during the recruit training, I had to get a keyhole surgery in my, my knee. That sounds painful. It was quite painful, but the thing was is that uh, Irish Army doctors are not the uh, most qualified in, in the world. So I went to, I think it was six different Army doctors, and they couldn't find out what the problem was. But instead, I went to my girlfriend at the time. Her brother was a very experienced, very, very good doctor. And within 30 seconds, he was able to tell me what was wrong. Wow. Problem was, is that uh, I had deteriorated the cartilage in my knee. And by that time, it was too late. So I actually finished my recruit training in absolute agony. But I wanted to get through it because one, I didn't want to be that person who didn't pass recruit training. And two, I did not want to go through it again. So you used sheer willpower to push through? Willpower is one way of saying it. Stupidity is another. <laughs> uh, it still actually lasts today. You still have any pain today? No, I don't have any pain anymore because um, at the time, every six months, I would have to get a steroid injection into my uh, knee to build up the cartilage. Now I only have to get it once a year. I haven't got it in about a year and a half, but there's uh, no pain at all because I built up uh, different muscles in my leg. To reduce the amount of strain put to on the area. Yeah, to reduce the amount of shock absorption. Mm. So, yeah, that, that was extremely difficult because I, didn't, I really wanted to pass recruit training and get on to the next level. But uh, I, I suffered a lot of pain. And also, because the army doctors couldn't find out what was wrong, everyone in the platoon, including my instructors, thought that I was lying. Oh no. So I was looked at as a, being a faker or something. But I never missed a training session or I never called sick or never stopped. You just went on through the pain. Yeah. To be honest, that was one of the most difficult times of my life ever. Because there was a lot of pain. A lot. And also potentially damaging. I think it is pretty much damaged for the rest of my life, but at least it's treatable. So I don't really think about it too much at all anymore. But on the second stage, uh, after passing out then, like one of the most proudest days of my life was standing in a Athlone barracks in my uniform, like a good uniform, and being classed and ranked as a a proper soldier and my mum and dad and my brother and my girlfriend at the time being in the in the crowd watching me while the two stars got put 
on my chest, you know, it was a, it was a very, very proud movement. I'm, I'm sure for my father it was, a, it was a lot more for him, so that was, that was amazing. The second stage, uh, the two to three star training, I learned so much. It was fantastic. I enjoyed every minute of it. I still didn't, uh, I still didn't get along with the people who I was in the training with, but I learned to kind of focus on myself and have my own goals. And by this time, I just didn't care anymore about the other people. At the same time, I would have still taken a bullet for any single one of them, because that's what you're trained to do. That's your job. But whenever they were going out for drinks or anything, they would never ask me to come out for drinks with them. But even if they did ask, I would never have went out. Not, to, not that they're bad people. I don't mean that they're bad people. It's just different uh, mentalities, different... You just didn't connect to them in some way. Not at all. Not at all. Which is fine. Was it around this time that members of the army started to get more specific roles that you started to focus more on becoming a marksman? Absolutely. Did it have anything to do with your extra ability to see well? Um, I, don't, I don't really know. I don't really know because I think it had a lot to do with the training that my father had given me. From a very, very young age, we used to like go out and, you know, put a, a Coke can mm -hmm. on its side and we would be in a field and we'd walk three or four hundred meters away and I would be about eight or nine years old and he would teach me how to use your breathing while you're resting, you know, you'd be lying on the ground, you'd be using the breathing, plus you'd be thinking about uh, the humidity in the air. You'd be weighing off how strong the wind is. Funnily enough, whenever I joined the army, they taught me a different way of shooting. But I actually always uh, followed what my father had taught me. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because it worked. What did they teach you differently? Just uh, different breathing techniques. You know, they would say, whenever you're breathing, so whenever you breathe in, your rifle will automatically, the barrel and the sights will go down. Mm. Whenever you breathe out, it'll automatically go up. And they say, whenever you see the target in your sights, stop breathing and pull the trigger. Whereas my father said, weigh it off so that whenever you breathe out, that's when you fire instead of holding your Interesting. breath. Interesting. Because he says that whenever you hold your breath, your heartbeat goes faster, so it means that you're going to be more off. Well, you were one of the top marksmen, so it must be that your father knew what he was talking about. I think so, I think so. Uh, yeah, during that second extension period is uh, when I won my first ever competition. I was the first two-star soldier in eight years to win an all-army shooting competition. Wow, that's um, amazing. Quite unheard of at the time. So you were quite a talent. I didn't really think about it at the time. I just wanted to, not only about shooting, I loved shooting. I thought it was great. Like, as a sport, I thought it was fantastic. Trying to deal with um, your own body's heartbeat and 
the sounds and the like the um, atmosphere and the speed and the adrenaline and then also trying to focus you kind of go into this uh, one tunnel vision where you don't even notice anybody else around you whatsoever even though you you could be running for a kilometer and stopping five times to shoot from five different positions and still be able to be extremely accurate with about a hundred pounds on your body as well and also one of the biggest things that I took into account was the safety aspect you know because you always hear about these stories and we had a lot about them back in, back in those times especially with um, British soldiers, American soldiers, um, I remember one thing happened to a Canadian recruit platoon and French army where accidents had happened on... You mean people accidentally shoot their own... Yeah, exactly. Wow. Just while training, you know, like... Wow. Yeah, so the safety aspect was always a big factor in my mind as well. But I loved it. I had so much fun. So I really, really wish that I could do it again just, <laughs> just for one more year. <laughs> Really do. So once you completed this training, what did you do? After passing out as a three-star soldier, which then you're properly, you're in the army. I've always seen it as there's two ways that you can carry on your career. One is you can be in the barracks and do your menial duties. Or the other way is that you can take advantage and apply for as many courses as you can. Sometimes you don't get them, sometimes you do. For me, I wanted to experience as much as I possibly could because I thought I was going to be in the army for life. Wow. That was the plan. So no more music teacher for you? No, no. No more music teacher at that time. No more of that. No, I thought I was going to be in the army for life. And I wanted to be in the army, army, not, I didn't want to be an electrician. I didn't want to be a driver. I didn't want to be an engineer. I wanted to be a soldier. I wanted to be a proper soldier, you know, like, um, so the next course that I did as soon as I finished the two to three star course was did a weapons course. I went through a course of dealing with six different types of weapons, like, and then I did another course after that to deal with really big weapons, <laughs> like the, the huge things and wow. dealing with like uh, rocket launchers and oh my God. javelins and things like that and shooting from tanks and stuff. It sounds like a lot of fun to me, actually. It, it, it's, it's quite intense, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And then also I wanted to go to another aspect as well, because during that time I was part of the first ever proper survival course that was ever run. We started off with 48 people on that course and four of us passed. Wow. That was the first ever time that course was run. It was a proper, proper survival course. But not only was it about survival, it was also about escape and invasion. So they had this whole scenario that uh, you get captured. And we knew it was a scenario, we knew it was part of the training, but um, none of us thought it was going to be as intense as it was. We were like uh, in, a, in this tent, blindfolded for a few days, 
and all you would hear is like footsteps and you would speak to each other and then the next thing you would get a slap on the side of the head because you thought that nobody was there. <laughs> Even though we knew that it was just training, but it still really, really messes with your mind. Do they feed you? Very, very briefly, very briefly. But it was all part of it, you know? It was all part of it. That was one of the most hardest courses I'd ever done. It was extremely hard, especially because the last point is you have to find a way to escape. How did you escape? Because they were picking on somebody else at the time, I'd spent uh, a good half of a day trying to undo the you know, cable ties, like the plastic cable ties. Mm-hmm. That's what they wrists. had in their wrists, yeah, and they had her tied for a few days behind our backs and um, same way our feet. We were on this ground that was like uh, dirt and there was a few rocks and stuff. So I just kept on scraping it up against a rock. But the problem was is that it kept on getting tighter and tighter. Oh. But I mean, I think they knew that that's the way that we had to have done it. So they kind of whenever they, I don't know still to this day, but I'm sure the instructors seen us trying to do this and kind of let us do it. Well, I mean, they can't stop you from doing everything. Otherwise you can't really. You can't really pass. Yeah. The problem was, the thing was, is like this was the first mm-hmm. ever time it was done. And we all knew whenever we were doing it that it was, uh, it was no holds barred. During this course, it was one of the very few courses that I'd done where there was no civilian law employed. So any laws that... Protect your human rights? Yes, they're gone. And then worse than that, there was no military law either. <laughs> so that was gone as well. But, but um, it was hard. It was really, really hard. Because after you got out, then we were um, in the Wicklow Mountains. Were you by yourself once you got out? We, I got out with two other guys. Okay. There were two guys who came. Um, we all escaped together. And we used the skills that we had learned for the few weeks of training. Uh, we had nothing but our clothes and a bayonet, just a knife. That was it. So what you do? We so you are in the Wicklow Mountains, which is kind of like the highest part, like plateau of mountains in Ireland. It rained constantly. It was freezing cold. I got very sick during a few days, so it lasted like two weeks. The survival course mm. lasted two weeks. Yeah, plus they were chasing you as well. How did you eat? So you had to find your own food. So forage in the forest? Yes. I got extremely sick because I was trying to purify this water, you know, like started a fire and rain, which was the most beautiful thing I think I still ever seen. It was a flame after three days. Uh, we're trying to purify water, but I still got really sick and then I found out then afterwards the water that I'd taken from the stream up the road was like a dead animal. So oh. I was so I was sick for two days. Oh no. Uh, it was really intense. It really was. Especially knowing that the guy, the instructors were chasing you as well and trying to find you. And once they found you, you were gone. That was it. You, 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 you were, were out of the course. You were out of the course. Not you had dead. failed. <laughs> yeah, you had failed. Uh, that was extremely hard. And also the two guys that we were along with, one of them, um, he had just said, okay, this is enough, I'm not doing anything anymore. Uh, the other guy who I was with, um, we obviously food, littlest amount of food that we could get. We were eating like berries and um, pine needles off a tree 
trying to get as much nutrients in as possible. I found an oxo cube, like a gravy cube. Oh, know, you know? yeah. And that, I found it randomly <laughs> on the top of a mountain. That was amazing. It tasted like the best thing ever. Uh, but also with like the sleep deprivation, the little amount of water, hypothermia kicking in. God. We ended up like falling out like a lot, like really badly. But we didn't want to expend energy or anything. So we were trying to like put a shelter together with some lumps of wood and some bit of material to kind of keep off the rain. But it's weird how your mind can go during a survival. So even though we knew it was training, but we like after it was the, real for your after body. After the second day, you were, you your don't life think it's was in danger. Yeah. You don't think it's in training? It's training anymore? I really didn't. We really, we really thought afterwards that it was like a, it was a serious, a serious situation. I never heard about the course being run after that. Yeah. Really, uh, I, I probably did. But uh, I just, uh, I've never, I've never heard of one being done after that. But it was fantastic. So did I'd you, love to do it again. did you guys stick together then, even though you were falling out? Yeah, we stuck together and we finished together. And then two other people finished as well? Yeah. Yeah, two other people finished as well. We never saw them the whole time. So you were a high achiever. You won a shooting course. And then you were one of only four people to finish the survival course. Yeah. Yeah, there was, there was a few achievements that I got in the army. There was other things like being on the army basketball team. and won a couple of fights in the boxing team, which was fantastic. Map orienteering. I'd done very well at that as well. But I, I, I don't really like talking about achievements. I don't know. I don't like self-praise. Well, you're yeah, not the type of person to brag. No. That's part of why I want to interview you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Am I correct that your specialty in the army thereafter was being a marksman? Yes. How did that come about? Just through courses, uh, through training. A, a lot of training and a lot of marksmanships. Um, a lot of competitions, and then I got my marksman badge, and then uh, that became kind of uh, my thing. No, it wasn't my only thing by any means. Even the achievements that I had are still nothing compared to the guys who I've worked with in the army. But yeah, that, I suppose that was my thing, yeah. How did that affect your career going forward in the army? I think that when like becoming a marksman as such gave me a title that was above some of the really respected and good soldiers of the world because becoming a marksman is extremely difficult and also taking into account that I don't have any education and I've always, I'm actually another revelation is that I'm a dyscalcic, which means, so you know dyslexic? Yeah. So dyscalcic means that uh, I'm not very good with numbers. Uh-huh. Like, pretty much terrible. Oh. And to be a marksman and to be able to judge distance, to be able to judge wind temperature or wind uh, speed, 
to be able to judge levels that are ground and in some cases as you see in the movies and things like that in some cases yes we have to take into account uh, the speed and the curve of the world as it turns on its axis somebody who is a physicist or somebody who is really good at math can do these calculations really easily this I found was really, really hard. The shooting part, I could get, but finding out where to shoot and when to shoot, like when the wind dies down and uh, what the wind speed is, because we used to do something like, you know, is it a point one, which is a low wind speed, or is it a point five, which is fast wind speed, and then a point, 15 would have been a hurricane. Trying to make a decision on that is, uh, I find was really, really difficult because the mathematics that goes into it is quite difficult. But I think that making those type of decisions was more gut feeling than anything. And I feel like I'm living, breathing proof of that. Interesting. Yeah. It's a bit weird. <laughs> Just to add on to that, as I said before, my father, I'm, st I'm pretty sure about this, I'm not 100% sure, because uh, I've been out of the army for a long time. My father, I, at the time that I was in, still held the record since uh, 1999 as the best marksman in the Irish Defence Forces. And my father has a really bad left eye. Big misconception about shooting is that you close your eye and you shoot with the one that's opened. You cannot shoot accurately unless you have two eyes open. Wow. He was supposed to not get into the army because of this. And then he ended up being the best marksman ever. Yeah, well, as far as I know, as far as I know, I haven't heard of anyone beating his, uh, his record so far. It's called The Possible. I, I, it could have been, but I, I haven't heard of it. Do you think that there's something about having a weakness? For instance, your difficulty with mathematics, your father's left eye, that somehow gives you more strength in other areas? Maybe. Maybe. I mean... It happens for Marvel comic characters, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, then it must be real. You know? Yeah, of course. And, yeah. Stan Lee was on to something. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe. I, I think for shooting, shooting for me, I don't know if it, what it was for my father, but shooting for me became kind of like second nature. It was the same for me. Shooting for me was the same as riding a bicycle after a while. What age did you first go shooting? Uh, my father took me shooting whenever I was five or six years old. But uh, he took me shooting very carefully with a lot of safety measures, with a lot of respect and stuff, you know. He would wake me up on a Saturday morning, like 5 a.m., <laughs> just getting bright. We'd go walking and, you know, it's still really frosty and, like, the dew is still on the grass. It's, the grass is still crunchy from the frost. You become comfortable with, uh, with holding a gun and comfortable with the recoil. 
and uh, comfortable with your own abilities. Having a gun was uh, in our home. First of all, safety measures were the most important thing for my father. Like he kept it locked away in a stable uh, locker and the key was always hidden. It's not like, you know, you see some of these crazy <laughs> documentaries or something about this guy having a gun in his house and, you know, ends up going crazy or something. It, like, there was nothing about that. Like, shooting for me was always kind of like a sport. Mm. I mean, we would never shoot animals or we would never... So you didn't hunt, actually? Not really, no. Not really, not really. No, well, I mean, my father used to get asked by, because we lived out in the countryside, uh, farm owners used to come to our house and ask my father to, like... Um, help with the wolves. Help with, uh, yeah, foxes and badgers and things, but my father never did any of that because shooting for us was, um, it was fun, but it was sport. It was the same as playing darts. It was the same as playing a game of pool. I think you gain a lot of respect for a weapon when, whenever you grow up that way. Like I still look at a weapon like a gun now and I know that it's extremely dangerous and you need to be 100% confident, you need to be 100% trained to hold a weapon in your hand. And I think nowadays that like weapons are so easily to come by that it's um, it's it's so unfortunate that whenever somebody then owns a weapon that it might be looked down on. I have a license to carry and I've gone shooting a number of times and I actually find that it relaxes me. It's interesting. Absolutely. I find it very calming. I, I can see what you mean. Like I can definitely understand it. I've never got, I've never felt that way about it because for me it was always uh, just a common thing, you know. It was uh, something I grew up with. But uh, I've heard that from a lot of other people before as well, so I can understand as well. For you, it's so part of your nature. Yeah, I mean, it's part of my growing up. I would like to say, I mean, I haven't, um, I haven't shot a weapon in a good few years, but I'm pretty confident if I ever got, <laughs> if I got my hands on one, I'd be able to still be able to hit targets. But uh, that's the only thing that I'm looking to hit. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about your time in Chad? In Africa? Absolutely, yeah. So Africa for me was a huge part of my life, a huge eye-opener. It changed my perception on life, changed my perception on culture, changed my perception on and um, what I was doing. How did it change it? So Growing up in a border town and seeing British soldiers walking around with rifles and in their Land Rovers or armoured cars with guns constantly. It always gave me this kind of mentality that, you know, we were brought up with, in fear and also in hatred for these people. That's how you were brought up. And I always had this mentality that um, 
no matter what country you're from, no matter what uh, mission you're on, no matter what you do, nobody ever has the right to walk into another person's country holding a weapon. And even though I was in the army, I still kind of had this mentality in the back of my mind. For me, it was a job. For me, it was, it, there was nothing, I don't care about politics. Still to this day, I don't care about politics. I never have. I think Charles de Gaulle said the best quote I've ever heard about politics and said, uh, politics is far too serious a matter for politicians. <laughs> And I believe that wholeheartedly, and I think like politics is just uh, something that's on the TV and then sends young young men over to other countries to fight for something that uh, they are forced to believe in, and it's extremely sad. But also, I think now after being in the army and being in another country, and we weren't uh, exactly welcomed with open arms by local people in Chad and I can understand why because like obviously there's a lot of different type of history but whenever I looked at the soldiers whenever I was a young boy and whenever I heard all the horrible horrible stories that soldiers did in my hometown I hated them with a passion but then when I became a soldier and I thought about it and I was like yes obviously a lot of them made their huge, huge mistakes. But a lot of those guys who were walking about my town were probably 17-year-old English kids with no other choice but to join the army. And if you're going to be sent to somewhere like Straban, then you're going to be sent to a hostile environment. And I'm sure they felt the same as I did whenever I was 18 years old and I was stuck in Chad. How did you feel? I mean, to be honest, like the locals there were, they were quite happy to see us because there had been a lot of, uh, a lot of hostility. There's like people just being, villages just being destroyed on a daily basis. It was something that I, I had never thought that I would ever experience. And I knew I was going to experience different cultures, but I didn't understand the depth of different cultures. First of all, meeting the um, Muslim community, seeing their different ways from, you know, home. And uh, to be honest, I thought it was beautiful. The, the way that the, the, they're different in their religion, but their mentalities and their, their priorities were the exact same. Family, very caring. But that was for a very short period. Because then, we, after that, we went into the depth of what Chad was, right beside the, the army camp. And it was in this uh, town called Gazbaida. Very, very small village. There's no roads, it's just sand. And there's a family, say, of 13 living inside this one hut. This one circular hut with a triangle roof on it and it's all made of bamboo and sticks. You know, there's no proper shelter, there's no there's no cement, there's no iron, it's just sand and bamboo 
and sticks. We were talking earlier about like uh, misconceptions about soldiers and being in the army. And I think like, you know, when you watch movies and when you, you know, see all these things on BBC or CNN and you see all these stories. And you could write a million books, you can draw a million pictures and you can tell a million stories, but it'll, it's still not going to be the same. You know, because mm-hmm. you can't explain. You can't explain things like that. You can't, but you can't even explain the other things as well. You can't explain being a recruit, sitting in your bed, waiting for your instructor to come in and start searching. You know, start inspecting. Hair on your face. Yeah, but it all becomes part of it because that's what you sign up for. At the end of the day, that is why you sign the dotted line. You know what you're getting into. You know it's not might not be that crazy or that intense or that you know traumatic, but you knew you were getting into something, you know. And like I, th- I feel like Chad changed me as a person for the rest of my entire life, especially after I came home. What were the differences that you noticed in yourself? One of the biggest reasons why I left the military was because whenever. We came home from Chad. There was no help whatsoever. Like nobody there to talk to you about your experience? No. no, there was no help. They stick a medal on your chest and tell you that you've got a massive honor and you should be proud. And in my head, I was thinking you've done something and you should be grateful that we're giving you this medal. What you don't realize is that when you come home, you're not the same person. And for months... How can you be? Of course not. You're never going to be the same person. For months, whenever I came back, I was a completely different person. I was a... Well, you looked death right in the face. Oh, well, many people do every single day. And it changes them all. Absolutely. But I think as a soldier, like at least after doing, you know so-called service the best that you could do is you know give people some help whenever they come home i mean i was extremely lucky extremely lucky this is actually something i would like to put on this podcast at the moment in the irish army and in ireland there's a massive uh, movement to go against the government because of the anti-malaria tablets that they gave us in Chad, Lebanon, Liberia, Bosnia. And the reason why there's such a movement against it is because the tablets they gave us, these anti-malaria tablets, they were called Larium, okay? And Larium is the cheapest anti-malaria tablet that you can take. If you even Google it now, you'll find out that Larium has most side effects out of pretty much all drugs that you can get prescription. And this is what you took for years? Yes. Every single Wednesday. You were lined up, you put it in your mouth and you check to make sure that you took it. Okay? Now the side effects include paranoia, insomnia, bad dreams. A lot of like sweating, a lot of loss of bodily actions and stuff. 
But the most side effect, the biggest and the highest and the most talked about side effect was suicidal thoughts. Now, whenever we went to Chad, we had a whole two or three different platoons. So we had, you know, 60, 70, 80 men. And it seems like every few months I'm hearing about one more person who's committed suicide, who was there straight away whenever we came home was um, one of, a, a, an extremely good friend of mine who committed suicide. And I mean, obviously all these things are, are like, you know, all of them have their different effects and they might have different things. But I think Larium had um, probably the biggest impact on that. Keeping in mind that the normal soldier from the private to sergeant was taking Larium, but the officers, they were given a different drug that was called Doxley's. It was taken on a daily basis and had one-eighth of the side effects that Larium had, but it was more expensive. It's something that's been brushed under the carpet for years, but now finally in the last uh, three or four years, it's actually come to light about how dangerous this drug actually is. So they wanted to save money, so they gave the more dangerous drug. Yeah, pro possibly the most uh, dangerous drug that you can get. And they gave it to the people who are risking their lives in combat and dying. With guns in their hands? That's not right. Under stressful combat situations, That's not right. under the heat in Chad, there was enough. And giving people suicidal thoughts already when they're watching people die there. Exactly. Exactly. It's something that's been brushed under the carpet for a long time, but thankfully now it's actually come to light. And hopefully in the future, that um, won't have to deal with that anymore. I hope so. Even last week, I just got a message from my friend who was in the army saying that uh, uh, another friend of mine had um, committed suicide. Two weeks before, I got another call saying the exact same thing. Both guys were in Chad. I'm sorry you had to go through that. Oh, me too. I am I'm sorry that I'd go through that as well. I mean, it, it actually did. It had a massive kind of effect on my life, but it's nothing. I mean, I find myself one of the luckiest people in the world because it didn't have such an effect like, like that. What you went through as a soldier is... I don't really know what to say about that because it sounds so difficult. To talk about something a little bit lighter, going into what you did after that, you went on to work in hospitality and management in London. What was it like to make that transition and why did you go to London? How, how did this come about? First of all, um, the main thing was hospitality because um, one of my first jobs and one of my first things that I started really getting interested in besides music, art and boxing was I started working in one of the most successful nightclubs in Ireland at the time. I was, I was only 14. Oh my god. Yeah. My brother was a bartender at this nightclub and I got a weekend job not even as a barback, just collecting glasses. I was pretty good at collecting glasses too, yeah. I think. 
Um, but that kind of, uh, during that time as well, I kind of, after that, when I got a little bit older, before I joined the army, I was a bartender there, then I was, uh, I became head bartender very quickly. I got a, a lot of interest in, not so much cocktails, because that didn't really, it wasn't a thing, but just organization, people, person, just a typical Irish hospitality. And then when I joined the army, any of the courses that I had done throughout the six years that I was there, and the days that I would have off from courses, I would go to the local bar, local cocktail bar, and say Dublin or Galway or, you know, Cork, and I would find out what's the cocktail bar or what's the best bar. And I would actually go there on my day off and ask them if it would be okay for me to work wow. for free. Wow. Uh, just to learn. Because I, I always have a massive interest in hospitality. But I love the kind of thought of hospitality. You know, many people have different ways of thinking about um, hospitality as a thing. I don't really believe that hospitality is something that you can learn in college. Not to say that I have like a disagreement about people who go to learn hotel hospitality in college, but I think you can't look at it in a textbook. You have to be involved in it and you have to be indulged and, you know, surrounded by it. And I always kind of had that um, interest in turning some customer's day around or making a relationship with somebody. So whenever I decided to leave the army, I went straight to London and I applied to be a barback in this uh, company called uh, Carney and Barrow. They were the um, oldest wine bar and oldest wine merchants in London. Uh, they started in like 1607 or 16 and uh, they had carried on and became like extremely well known. I started off as a barback with them. I thought that I knew about hospitality and I thought that I knew about drinks. I thought that I knew about cocktails, but really I had no idea compared to these people. And when I started as a barback there, I uh, was also during that same time, I was doing a security course to become a private security guard. That was my kind of goal. I was just kind of being a barback for, um, just for money, you know, while Makes I was doing sense. this uh, security course. Yeah. I wanted to be like a private uh, private security guard for like celebrities. That's probably. quite cool. I, I could see if Justin Bieber or something like that. <laughs> and... Um, then I, there was this, you know, there's always that one person in your life who becomes your mentor. Who was that for you? For me, it was this French guy called Julien Moran. He was the beverage manager of Corny and Barrow at the time. I was just about to leave and go to the security job. I was a barback. I was not making a lot of money, obviously, because London's so expensive. Mm -hmm. And he came to me one day and he says, don't leave. And I laughed. <laughs> I says, are you serious? <laughs> I'm cut fruit. I've gone from 
being a well-respected soldier and doing, you know, missions and hardcore stuff to cutting limes and lemons. I was like, of course i got to leave. And he says, no, just trust me. If you're going to trust anyone right now, trust me, please don't leave. And I don't know why, I still, still to this day, I don't know why. And we often talk about it, but uh, I trusted him and I didn't leave. Two weeks later, I got uh, promoted to bartender. Three weeks later, I got promoted to head bartender. Two months after that, the company had uh, put their money in to me to like uh, for my training to become a supervisor. Wow, that's fast. Yeah, it was quite fast. Yeah, it was faster than I expected. Uh, And it was uh, right beside St. Paul's Cathedral, so in uh, Paternoster Square. So it was like extremely busy all the time. And you had, you know, the uh, investment banker types and you had the lawyer types. You had like, you know, Deloitte, Goldman Sachs, all these companies coming in. And I think the reason why I got along so well with these people who were completely the opposite of me is because I stayed extremely true and uh, this is the one thing I don't like talking about myself too much about like a bragging or anything but I feel like at that moment I kind of made a decision to be okay this is the person that I am and I'm not gonna falter or change I'm a Straban boy at heart and I always will be and and then if people don't like it or don't accept it then that's not my fault and it's their problem more than mine so I decided to keep my own way of going on my own jokes my own messing around my own mentality and it seemed to have worked Julian Moran then taught me loads of different things about hospitality, about the way they think about cocktails, the way they think about alcohol or think about drinks. You know, um, one of the most beautiful things that I've ever heard in my life was whenever he told me, um, you know, think about a base spirit, think about a vodka, think about a whiskey, think about a rum. And if you were going to put that into a, a shape, what kind of shape would it be? And I was like, oh, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> That's such a hard question. And he goes, well, how does it feel whenever you drink a raw spirit? This is well, it kind of burns, it's kind of spiky. He goes, okay, boom, there you go. So think about this ball that has loads and loads of spikes <laughs> sticking out of it from all angles. And now add your citrus and you kind of soften it a little bit. Now add your sugar and now you're softening it a little bit more. Now add another element, you know, maybe a shrub or a cordial or whatever, you know. Not to get into two minute cocktail times. <laughs> but basically he spoke about making cocktails almost like a sculptor would talking about uh, making a sculpture. <laughs> you know? Um molten something that is rough and spiky and hard and sanding it down and making it into a perfect round sphere and making it so smooth and so nice and so 
beautiful mm-hmm. that it becomes a cocktail. And obviously, coming from Ireland, uh, uh, we didn't have those type of things. I'm pretty sure I went home a couple of months ago, or a couple of years ago, and uh, I asked for a gin and tonic in a bar, and they said, sorry, we don't do cocktails. That's <laughs> 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 true. So to learn that was a whole different, uh, just opened up a whole new world. Then it went on to wine, which back in Ireland you have three types of wine. You have red and white, and if you're in a really fancy place, they have rosé. <laughs> <laughs> so to, to learn about all these different grapes and everything, I got really interested. So uh, Julianne convinced the company who I was working for, Carney and Barrow, to actually put me through my WSET course. Wow. Yeah. So they put me through the course. I was working in different bars belonging to Carnian Bar, which was 12 in the centre of London. I met some of the most amazing people I've ever met in my entire life through that company. I studied for four years. During those four years, I ended up getting my diploma which is the only education, the only grades that I have. Well, you're very well ready. <laughs> <laughs> you might say you have no education, but you were telling me some of the books you've read, and you are the only person I know who've read, who's read the entire Bible three times, mm. plus the Quran. Mm-hmm. And you were telling me your favorite book. The Divine Comedy, Dante Algeri. It's not bad. It's a beautiful book. <laughs> a beautiful book. Yeah. So you got your diploma? Yeah, I got my diploma and the, my whole world changed after that. In what way? I studied my ass off, basically. I worked. At, at that time, I was a bar supervisor, then assistant manager of a restaurant for Carney and Barrow but all the while still studying. So I would do 10 hours working in the restaurant and then I'd go home and study for four or five hours. So I didn't go out a lot, studied a lot because I found it a lot harder. The people who I was in the course with for that amount of time, they were all, you know, sons and daughters of wine makers and, You know, uh, wine merchants, and again, I'd only been introduced to wine properly a couple of years before, so I had to study that a little bit extra harder. Yeah, it it, it took a lot, but to be honest, it didn't really, I I didn't really find it that hard because I was so interested in it. After I got my diploma, Connie and Barrow were absolutely amazing and they sent me to so many different countries. I was in Naples for months, working with Peroni, working on cocktails. They sent me to Iceland. So cool. Yeah, so good. And then my biggest one was uh, going to work with uh, Louis Rudevat, who are the makers of Cristal Champagne. And uh, working with those guys for a while was the biggest eye-opener ever because I was walking in to this um, multi-billion euro family mm-hmm. eating with gold cutlery. 
wow. Having a three-star Michelin chef cook food, but all the while I was still wearing Primark suits. <laughs> 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 but it's a... I kind of like that. And I think everybody else kind of respected that as well. Because as long, even though I, like, I'll always be who I am. I mean, I'm sitting here talking to you right now, and I'm still, <laughs> I'm still, I'm still wearing Primark clothes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can get some cute stuff there. No, I'm telling you. Um, but you can, you have to. You, I feel like you have. I'll always stay to who I am. You know, and remember what's important. Becoming a Somalian was is something that I, I actually don't know any other person from where I'm from who is a Somalian because it, it's not known, you know, it's not like when, it's not a thing that we can really do because there is no wine growing around us. But to come from Ireland and then become a Somalian, yeah, I'm quite I'm quite proud of myself at that, to be fair. Yeah, you should be. Yeah. Yeah, but London was great. And how did you then transition from London to Berlin? How and why did that happen? I left Carney and Barrow in London to do a private venture. This woman from Goldman Sachs, a fantastic person, she said that she always wanted to open up her own bar. And she was at the end of her retirement in Goldman Sachs. And to my surprise, as a 23-year-old, she wanted me to be the bar manager of this place where she would actually put down the money for everything. And she says, I want you to be the bar manager. I want you to be the restaurant manager. I want you to basically be the GM. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'd taken up, up an offer, obviously. And it was open for a while, long enough. And to our surprise, <laughs> mostly my surprise, we actually did a hell of a lot better than I thought we did, than I thought we would. But then after that, there were some uh, issues back home, health issues with family, that I felt like, uh, even though I was on a roll basically at this stage, I was like, okay, family is more important. So I decided to leave it and go home. And that's when everything stopped. In what way? Because I went home. I had been in London for five years. And then all of a sudden I've gone home and London's fast. It's competitive. Mm -hmm. It's, you've got And the business didn't do well anymore. The business I was in? Yeah. Oh no, we sold it and we made a fortune. Oh. (laughs) No, we actually did really well. But uh, it was the change in pace. Because mm. in London, everything's so fast and everything. Everybody's in a rush to go nowhere. <laughs> and then I went home and I was like unemployed. And it was the first time ever in my life I actually went on welfare. I'd done it because I didn't know what I wanted to do next. I was thinking about opening up my own place. I was looking at many different opportunities. My uncle gave me a few shifts in his bar working, you know, but it wasn't the same. You know, everything had stopped and I was more fixated on family and, you know, mm-hmm. worried about family that I didn't even care. 
But then when everything became a little bit more stable, then I was like, okay, you know, it's time to... I've been on welfare for a couple of weeks, but at the same time, I was like doing odd shifts and bars, and I was thinking, oh, you know, maybe I could bring this London lifestyle to Strabane. <laughs> and that was the worst thing I could have thought of. Because <laughs> uh, people don't want that back in Strabane, you know? And rightly so. You know, people have their own kind of routines and mentalities, so it wasn't that, it just didn't suit. There was a relationship during this time as well that I was quite excited about, and then that didn't work out. And then uh, me getting my own places and running my own places, that didn't work out. So literally a friend of mine says, I'm going to Berlin tomorrow. Do you want to come? <laughs> and did you go? Yep. Jumped on the plane with him. We came here together. I'd never been to Germany before in my life. I'd never been to Berlin. I didn't know anybody over here. I came here. I didn't really have a place to stay. Yeah. I came over, made some friends through his friends. And whenever he was leaving, he says, you know, we got to go back soon. And I was like, do you know what? I think I'll stay here for a while. <laughs> it was four years ago. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just like a spare the moment kind of thing, just a spontaneous kind of leap of faith. But it worked out. There's definitely some bumps along the way, but. <laughs> so you currently work at Soho House Berlin. What's it like to work there and be the manager of the bars there? I love it. I really do. I do love it. I remember Soho House when I was working in London and I'd actually done a couple of wine tastings for staff in like Shorty's House and Dean Street. But I think a lot of people have the same kind of thought process that I had for working there. It's like, you know, it's kind of upper class, you know, uh, members, you know, kind of pompous maybe. And after I started working there, my, my views changed completely. First of all, it was the people who, the staff who were working there. Because at this time, I was kind of thinking to myself, okay, you've been doing hospitality for pretty much most of your life. Maybe it's time to go on to something else. And then I met the team who were working at Soho House at that time. The two guys uh, from Straight Up, uh, Jordan Griffin and Matt Boswell, they were in charge of my uh, trial shift that first night that I went in. And really I went in with the mentality of, uh, I don't really care if I get this job or not. And then I listened to these guys talking about drinks and talking about hospitality and talking about their job. And it reminded me of the way I used to speak about that job. The two guys, they kind of lit a fire underneath me again and made me want to go back to the person that I wanted to be and who I believed that I was. So I, after that, I kind of um, got 
stuck back into work again. Got back into working in the bar during the day, going home and then picking up cocktail books that I'd had to dust off <laughs> from years ago and studying again. And I restudied things and then I was looking at the websites to find out the new kind of things that bartenders were doing. And I was sort of going around Berlin and looking at, like, uh, experience the bars that are around Berlin. And all the while, the friendship and the kind of, not even friendship, the family that was created during that time in Soho House, during the bar staff, like, between the bar staff and the floor staff as well, and, like, every, all the staff. The family that was created then, three years ago, is still just as strong today. Do you have any stories you can share with us about working at Soho House? I don't think any that you could... Uh, Publish? Uh, no, just any that uh, would be appropriate. Oh, there's loads of stories. There's plenty of stories. I don't <laughs> think so. I don't want to... No, no. Do you have any special drinks that you love? Oh, special drinks? Like my favourite drinks? Yeah! Oh. That's easy. <laughs> what? Um, my favorite cocktail ever is, uh, is it's a bijou. What's a bijou? So a bijou was made in uh, 1886 in the French Quarter of New Orleans. Bijou in French means jewel. Oh. So there's three ingredients. There's gin, which is your crystal. Mm-hmm. There's a green chartreuse. Mm-hmm. which is your emerald mm-hmm. and then there's a martini rosso like a sweet vermouth which is your ruby with all those jewels how can you go wrong exactly <laughs> diamonds are forever <laughs> <laughs> diamonds are a girl's best friend <laughs> <laughs> it's true, uh, for me that cocktail is probably the epitome of the perfect cocktail. <laughs> the colour, the scent, the way it looks in the glass, and then when you taste it and the, the way it changes once it gets a little bit warm, you don't get nothing much better than that. Well, there is something better than that that came from your experience at Soho House. That's where you met your girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yes, I can talk all day about that. About one month after I had started, I started getting back into the confidence and back into the same routine because for me, bartending is almost like theater. I'd seen. Sean being like working, I knew that she had something to do with like membership relations. She was sitting at the bar one night and I was and behind the bar obviously working. And she was just finished her shift. I hadn't really talked to her yet. So I went up and I says like, uh, do you want to drink of anything? She says, yeah, just some sparkling water would be fine. And now me being a thick, stupid, confident, arrogant, Irish, bartender that I am. I said, sorry, it's after 7 p.m. I don't serve any sparkling <laughs> water. It's like, do you want a real drink? And uh, she started laughing and she says, okay, uh, my favorite cocktail is a Tom Collins. 
So I made her a Tom Collins, and uh, that was it. Like she laughed, and she said, "I remember she said something like, uh, oh, I can see you're going to be trouble.'" <laughs> and my response was, "Darling, you have no idea." <laughs> oh, this was cute. It's so cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> it's so sweet. <laughs> Um, then we, we actually like, uh, we, beca- we were, became kind of friends, you know, I liked her a lot, I, was, uh, I liked her a lot, but I definitely thought that she was way out of my league, <laughs> so I never did anything about it. We had kind of went out on nights with friends and, you know, had some drunken talks, whatever, but nothing was ever forwarded until uh, a few months later. A few months later, um, I was sitting at home with one of the guys who we worked with and sitting, we were uh, listening to music and I was told that she had gone back to France. I thought that she had gone back to France for good. Oh. So, at that moment, I had realized how much I cared about her and how much uh, I felt like I was wasting time and I felt like I was letting something slip. So <laughs> just there and then uh, I called her and I was like, uh, okay, so you're in France. Um, what airport do I go to? I'm going to book a flight for tomorrow morning. Oh my God, that's so sweet. Her reaction was, don't be so stupid. <laughs> And then she told me that she was only gone for a holiday. (laughs) 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 Which is quite embarrassing. Um, But when she came back, we didn't really express anything until uh, one night I had all the guys from Soho come round to my apartment along with another guy who worked there. And we had a big dinner. It was like 15 of us. She had come along, obviously, as well. And at the end of the night, when the food was done, the drink was drank, mm-hmm. uh, she stayed. And we kissed for the first time. And the next morning, uh, we woke up, and I looked at her, and I started like shaking off my hands, you know, like dusting off my hands. And she says, like, what, what are you doing? I was like, well, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, I've already found what I've been looking for, so I'm done. Oh, that's so sweet. And she says, you must be crazy. <laughs> so basically, she chased after me for six months after that. I'm not sure if I believe you right now. <laughs> that, that's a complete lie. <laughs> I chased after her <laughs> for a while. And uh, yeah, we ended up like uh, getting together. I thought it would have been a slow process, but two weeks after, she was basically living with me. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was amazing. It still is amazing. It's the first, uh, it's like, um, it's amazing whenever you're in a, in a relationship when um, it's so easy. Mm, I know what you mean. You know, it's just, there's no pressure, there's no judgment, there's no. Uh oh, I wanted to ask you about when you're getting engaged. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she needs to know that my finger size. (laughs) Now you sound like my boyfriend. Hey, it's a 21st century. A girl can ask a guy as well, huh? 
my work and I'm just going to get him a reservation ring. It's not an engagement ring. It's just a people phone thing. He's single. <laughs> something from the spade or something. Not <laughs> <Got> a proposal. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. That is such a cute story. It is, yeah. And what kind of romantic things do you guys do together? She does more than me. She's got a lot of surprises. She surprises me almost every week with something. Oh. Something. But it could be the smallest thing. Like what? She knows that I, the only thing that I miss from back home is, you know, uh, crisps. Chips in American English, yeah. Uh, that you can get from the UK and that you can get from Ireland. So she actually ordered some online. So we actually oh, have them in the cupboard. Oh, <laughs> you know? um, she does loads of things like uh, it's, it's countless to even try and think about them. She knows me so well. I don't really, I don't, I'm not the type of person to speak about what I like and what I don't like. I despise presents. I hate getting presents. Why? Because I don't know how to react. Uh, I understand. I like them a lot, you know what I mean? I really enjoy getting them, but I always feel like I'm letting somebody down if I don't like oh. start doing a song and a dance and <laughs> jumping around the place if they give me something. But uh, now she's... The detail that she looks into, for me, is crazy. It's amazing. I never thought that um, you could actually have a relationship when somebody listens so well and sees sees you so much more than you even see yourself. She's nice. Well, I'm so happy that you guys found each other. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about your music that you make nowadays? Well, to be honest, because um, the amount of work that uh, I've been doing in um, Soho. I haven't really made music in, in a while. I haven't performed in a long time. I would like to, because obviously, it's definitely a, a, like a lovely release, mm -hmm. like such a happy time, you know? Even though I'm definitely not the best guitarist, or definitely not the best singer in the world, mm -hmm. but just for um, playing is, you know, it's such a nice kind of escape and a nice release and kind of helps with, uh, I don't like to say stress because I don't really feel stress, but it's a nice getaway. Well, especially the way you were talking about it earlier, it sounds to me like it's one of your passions. I mean, music, it's the be all and end all of me. I don't really speak about myself and I don't like talking about myself, but if I was going to say that there's one thing that is connected me with the universe and that uh, it's music. Seem to need the help of someone else to 
song without playing anything for six months um, like you have just played the song amazingly well you are also someone who is very well versed in different scenarios in which a person maybe would have to survive you have been boxing since you were 10 years old in the army you were one of the few people to survive a survival course you are clearly an expert 
So let's say that we have a woman who is alone on the street and somebody grabs her from behind. He has some sinister purpose for doing that. Either he's grabbing her purse or he's grabbing her perhaps to rape her. What is your advice to her? Okay. It's one of the two. Both uh, scenarios, I would have the exact same answer. What's the answer? Whenever I was uh, boxing, I was doing it for a while. I was doing like uh, kids boxing and also there was a lot of girls in the boxing club as well. Let's just say the exact same thing happened with a girl or a guy. And somebody tries to reach into your pocket. And this is going to sound like really intense and quite aggressive. Mm-hmm. Any scenarios that I've ever been in with something similar or in young girls that I used to teach boxing to, honestly, is go for the throat. No joke. I think judo is a fantastic type of martial arts, especially for females. Because, uh, unfortunately, there has been loads of cases where females have been grabbed from behind and, you know, trying to grab purses and stuff like that. Judo is a fantastic defense mechanism to use another person's weight and trajectory Mm. against them. The same as wrestling, actually. Like, uh, American wrestling, especially. You're using their force trajectory and the weight of their own body towards themselves so if somebody's running towards you and you slip an arm your right arm up against their left arm as your opposites and swing them in the way that they're running then that doubles the force they're actually going towards it's something that you learn in martial arts Whenever I uh, was done with boxing, I ended up getting into martial arts and uh, MMA for a very, very short period of time. Um, my cousin, um, Chinan, is a young, year younger than me. We grew up together. He's actually basically my brother. We grew up with the same interests. And Chinan has always and still is one of the best, I don't want to say martial artists, because that entails different categories. I want to say that he understands the movement of body with the psychological side of martial arts as well. Chernin now owns um, Titan Strength in Preston in England and he's done extremely, extremely well for himself. He does a Titan Strength and uh, Titan Academy on, on, on Facebook and on Instagram. I still look at him as my brother and we used to fight all the time. <laughs> but not fighting in a bad way. We used to fight because we wanted to learn more. Tiernan had this old Bruce Lee book and Tiernan must have read that book 50 times. He's also one of the most intelligent people I've ever met in my life. I have a lot of respect for him and I have a lot of love for him. And I think the way that he looks at martial arts is the way that I think the both of us look at um, martial arts. The way in defense, the way of the art of it. And sometimes that 
out. Unfortunately, it comes into real life situations. I could never understand why anybody would ever start a fight randomly in the street or after a nightclub with somebody that they don't know or they don't know what they're capable of. Because I have seen people like Chinon and I have seen people from my hometown who stayed away from the nonsense of fighting and actually interested in martial arts. And these big, baldy guys who, you know, muscles for days, <laughs> you know, could lift cars for a living. And I've seen Chinon turn these guys inside out and tie them up as if they were a piece of string. It was never in, a, in an aggressive way. It was always in a well-calculated, well-disciplined uh, way. He's my cousin. He's my hero, to be honest. Me and him, we got out of Stepan Vortex. And Tiernan has made something of himself that I'm so proud of him. But he brought up this uh, video last week talking about not getting infatuated with the Instagram models or not getting infatuated with the Instagram athletes. Oh, okay, athletes. No. And to like set your goals according to you. Don't ever try to be like someone else because there is nobody else except for you. That's wise. Right? Very wise. But unfortunately, given this the day that we live in, isn't it? <laughs> you know, we look on Instagram, we look on Facebook, and we try to copy somebody else's life, but it's unfathomable and it's uh, sometimes unrealistic. That's true. And I think that like the, the message that he sends about uh, exercise, about uh, martial arts, about the mentality and the psychology behind martial arts, it's exactly the way that we should be thinking about it nowadays. I'm a massive, huge fan of MMA and boxing. Like, I watch it every single night when I come home. Wow. Every single night. I love it. But, going back to your question, like, is that going to help, example, Stephanie walking down, uh, walking down a dark alley and she gets her bag stolen? The problem is, is that it's being targeted at a the male audience. Ronda Rousey, whenever she was in MMA, she became one of the biggest uh, female superstars in the world. And I think that was one of the best things that could have happened. Because mm -hmm. it showed that girls can do this too. I'm pretty sure Ronda Rousey would be able to kick their butt off <laughs> uh, most of the MMA fighters. Definitely. Out there, right? And I've trained with uh, girls back in Astroban and boxers who have destroyed guys who were going like you no know, prospects for the Olympics. First of all, I think like if I ever had a daughter, which I really hope I don't, <laughs> I really t hope I don't, because I think she wouldn't be allowed out until she's like 35, 35 or 45 maybe, ish. Uh, because I know that there's little fuckers out there like me. <laughs> um, but no, of course, yeah, there's a worry. And I mean, 
not to, to, uh, it's not being sexist, but it's actually just biologically proven that uh, females are less um, strong. Certainly. You know, certainly we're physically built different. We're the more vulnerable sex. Yes, and that's just through genetics. Have you ever read that book, *Sapiens*? Like proves it in a very kind of um, scientific way, and uh, it makes total sense. But it's not in like a kind of derogatory way. No, no. It's not that women are less than men. It's just that we're different. Yes, exactly. We have different strengths. I'm so thankful that, that women are different from men because without women we'd be dead. What is the hardest life lesson that you've ever had to learn? Hardest life lesson I've had to learn but with a positive outcome is from a guy who uh, was working at Soho House whenever I started. A guy called Fabio and he says uh, three simple words and he says enjoy your life. <laughs> You know, it sounds very simple, three very simple words, but when you look deeper into it, it's like, how can you? Things are so hard, life is so hard, and uh, life lessons. I don't think that I've seen more or less than anybody else. I don't think like I've been through more or less than anyone else. I'm sure, as I said, like everyone has a story. The hardest life lesson and the hardest thing that I've ever had to do in my entire life was sit down and be absolutely honest with myself and turn around and look at myself and be like, okay, you think that you have this personality, you think that you have this, you think that you have that. It's time to be 100% honest with yourself, Shane. This is who you really are, you know, and really look and express and admit your faults. I think that's the hardest thing that anybody can do. Is to be honest with themselves. Absolutely. Because you can hide behind a mask, you know. Every time I walk into the bar, every time that I'm working, every single day is a theatre. When I was in the army, it was uh, putting on a brave face because I didn't want anybody else to know how scared I was or how uncomfortable I was. Or even within my family, I was like, you know, I wanted to just make everybody proud. You know, when I was young, I, I told like uh, loads of lies, you know, to try and be like my brothers and my sister, because I thought that people would think better of me. And the best thing, that I, the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life was ask myself honest questions and get honest answers. But the best thing I've ever done was the exact same, because I changed instantly. People care about you, people are here for you, people will look after you, but you don't deserve their care or their love until you love yourself. What is the meaning of life for you, Shane? We're here for a good time, not a long time. (laughs) 
you know. Is that an Irish saying or is that your saying? I'm pretty sure I heard that from somebody in a bar somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in Galway. Sorry, unknown person in bar. <laughs> my dream and my sort of, um, the thing that I always thought about was uh, my funeral, actually. Not in a morbid way, not in a bad way, but just being like, do you know whenever on a funeral when the priest starts reading about has the sheet and he says like a Shane McManus was, I want whenever he goes to read that, that it's like uh, one of those cartoons, like a fax machine kind of uh, papers where it unrolls, unravels <laughs> and it goes the whole way down the aisle. <laughs> I want him to be like Shane McManus was, you know, a music lover, a bartender, a soldier, a boxer, a friend, a traveller. What's the meaning of life for me? Do as much as you can while you can. That's a good answer. Uh, what's one book you recommend? I've got two. Is that okay? That's okay. The Divine Comedy. Tantia mm-hmm. Jerry and 1984. It's not for people. <laughs> it's true. I think uh, a lot of people, when they have any kind of power, they then like to exert it over others and try and use fear and pressure to get them to do what they want, but it's not sustainable. You wear people out, you make them unhappy, and in the end, they're less productive anyway. Absolutely. And I would say in any, situ- any situation, in any job ever, is relax, stop and think, be glad, be lucky. To appreciate what you have. Appreciate what you have. Appreciate what you have. I don't want to go back into it, but I'm speaking about, you know, about being back in Chad. Whenever we were there, there we used to, uh, we used to have uh, kids coming up every single hour on the hour, asking for a cadeau. And a cadeau means like present in French. We speak French. And you would give them an empty plastic water bottle and on their faces it would look like Christmas. Aww. You know? And I'd be so glad. And then when I came home, I'd like seeing my friends, little brothers and little sisters complaining because they didn't get the latest PlayStation 3, crying. And I'm like, you know, that, that's, that's not right. Mm. But also different uh, cultures, different countries, different situations. But I'm, I'm in a very, very comfortable situation now. You know, I've got this uh, fantastic job, fantastic apartment with an amazing girlfriend. For the first time in my life, I'm actually comfortable with, like, financially. Finally. <laughs> But I don't take it for granted whatsoever. Not one day. I'm still trying to figure it out and I still feel weird, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? 
being comfortable or being having a wine cellar yeah yeah well, that was a big dream <laughs> that was a big long dream that i never thought was going to happen but there you go huh? and what about one place you recommend everybody visit galway <laughs> really is that galway you? i've never been galway or reykjavik ah very nice I think whenever I'm done with life, I'm gonna go to Reykjavik for my last few years. Since I've left Ireland, I've realized how much I love Irish culture. Mm. And, and I love Ireland. I'll put a link to all these things that Shane has mentioned in the notes to the show. Thank you so much. Oh. Seriously? No, thank you for being a guest. No, thank you so much for oh, asking me. Because this is the first time that I've uh, spoke about pretty much 90% of the things today and uh, since ever so uh, thank you so much and if I had to say one last thing enjoy your life (laughs) and if you want to get in touch with Shane I'm going to put a link to his Facebook in the notes to this show and also If you want to see him in action and be in a very safe place, because you know he's got all these skills he's learned from the army, you should go hang out at Soho House in Berlin. You might get lucky and see him there. Thank you, Shane. Thank you. (laughs) Bye.